This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condes Presley, and today we're getting a bit of a history lesson. Our guest is Clay Risen. He's an author and opinion editor at The New York Times. His latest book is The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and The Dawn of the American century. Tell me about your interest in Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, the uh, the interest for me really started when I was a kid. I My Boy Scout troop was Troop 92 in Nashville, the Rough Riders, and we had all this cool insignia that had sort of Theodore Roosevelt themes. And so it was in there, it was there in the back of my head. Uh, but as I started looking for a new book project, it, it occurred to me that there was a lot more to the story than just Theodore Roosevelt. And that there's a story to be told about this unique regiment of soldiers. Uh, they actually weren't soldiers before they joined the the unit. They were cowboys and college athletes and this sort of dirty dozen kind of crew. Uh, so there's a story there. There are a thousand men, a thousand stories. But there was also a story to be told about the country. And, you know, in some ways a very good story. I think also, you know, in some ways a, 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 not, a not so good story about the country. And, and so a, let's say a complicated story, but one that people I don't think really had explored and, and that there was something, uh, something of value to digging into that and, and writing a book about. What led you to, first of all, pursue a, a career in journalism and then to turn that career into your role as uh, an opinion editor at The Times and then an opportunity to write books? Uh, well, you know, in college, I worked on the college newspaper and uh, sort of by happenstance, you know, seemed like a fun thing to do. And I, I found that I loved it. And I actually edited the opinion section for my college newspaper. Uh, so that sort of was not something I thought I would end up doing professionally, but it actually is what I do now. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I was a teacher for a little while. I was uh, I was in grad school, and and then I I sort of realized that I, that that experience in college and the opportunities that you know there were there were some chances to sort of pursue that again, and and it it just appealed to me in a way that kind of nothing else did. The idea that I could go work on a newspaper uh, as as a reporter or as an editor. And and really start to shape conversations out there. And so uh, I've had a you know a couple of jobs leading up to my career now, almost ten years at the New York Times. And and it's always been in this world of uh, opinion writing, opinion shaping, and and it's fun. It's you know look, I mean it's a different different story every day. And so now this is what your fifth book because you've written about civil rights. Look, I love history. I love American history. Among other things, what I like to look for are stories that people think they know, they know a little bit about, but they will tell you, you know, I actually don't know the backstory. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we all know that that's a thing and we know it's an important thing. But do we know the story behind it and how hard it was to get that bill passed and how much the interaction of, of the civil rights movement played into a legislative battle? And it ends up being, I think, uh, a pretty unique and fascinating story. Yeah, same thing with the Rough Riders. It's this story. We sort of everyone knows the Spanish American War was this thing uh, that we had Cuba, uh, that we went to war over Cuba against Spain. But the details are often foggy for folks. So yeah, I wanted to dig into that. 1898. So you dug into that, and how'd you do that? Well, you know, first, uh, as with all my projects, you start off. I start off, and I I, uh, I read all the books that I can find out there, and and then I start to poke around. 
you, you, little names come up here and there, little stories, little things, and you just dig in from there and you start looking for archives. You find out what, where where are the archives that that might reveal to me certain materials, certain people, certain figures. Uh, obviously, the Theodore Roosevelt collection, which is at, at Harvard University, is is well known and it's it's voluminous. There's a lot of material there for me. Uh, there was an, an archive out in Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Nevada, Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is a small, small town, uh, about an hour east of Santa Fe. And that was where the Rough Riders had their reunion every two years for decades. They had a reunion there after the war. And at some point, a librarian said, hey, you guys, send me your letters. You know, anytime you have letters, papers, you write something down, send it to me and I'll collect it. So now... There's this fantastic collection out there. So I knew I had to go to Las Vegas, New Mexico, and I spent some time out there and just, you know, that really, that was the mother load of, of research. Talk about some of the things you discovered and the stories that are told. So one of the things that I think is, is really interesting about the Rough Riders is that we, we think about it as the story around the supporting figures around Roosevelt. But I really think that there are, there are many characters in the Rough Riders uh, who in and of themselves are important figures, symbolically often. Uh, you know, there's some some kind of funny, char- or not funny, but uh, the number one and the number two tennis player in the country quit tennis to join the Rough Riders. And then they went back to tennis and they both won U.S. Opens, multiple U.S. Opens. They were, they're both in the Tennis Hall of Fame now. Uh, there were rich, rich guys, poor guys. Um, you know, obviously it was, uh, you know, and Roosevelt talked about it as being, uh, you know, a, uh, a picture of America. Now, of course, it, it wasn't a picture of America. And, you know, you have someone like Roosevelt saying, well, this is, I'm uniting all Americans. This represents the best of America. Now, of course, it's all men, right? And, uh, and of course, it's segregated. So uh, you have no African-Americans in that unit. Uh, now, you do have, to be fair, a lot of diversity Otherwise, there was a lot of class diversity. You had fairly wealthy people, fairly poor people, uh, geographic diversity. And uh, there were some Native Americans. There were some uh, Latinos in, in the unit. And so, you know, I don't want to excuse Roosevelt, but he was coming from something that said, compared to what else we've done, uh, this, is, this is a different kind of unit. But I think it does highlight what people thought about America at the time. I mean, that's one thing that I think is important to understand about this moment is that Americans of all types uh, were trying to figure out what does America mean? And there was kind of a fight going on. You know, what, was America a more diverse place? I mean, in some ways, it's like today. You know, people are saying, well, we've got all this, all this immigration coming in. We still have tensions over the Civil War 30 years later. We have a booming economy. You know, what is America? What does this mean? And... The war, and I think the Rough Riders, gave people a definition. And in some ways, uh, you know, it united the country. Uh, it united the country in a certain way. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was striking and, and I think um, telling that during the war, during the Spanish-American War, uh, there were several veteran, you know, regular segregated units, you know, African-American units, regiments, that fought alongside the Rough Riders, and Roosevelt at the time praised them and said, "You guys, you know, you guys did great. I would am, am proud to call you Americans." And then when he was running for president, he turned around and, and disparaged them and said, "I don't, 
you know, I don't think they could have done nearly as well as they did if they didn't have, you know, it was all about the white officers who were in charge. So to me, it's and 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 that that's also there's something very telling about yeah, that. That sounds like America at the time. You know, people saying, well, we need to we need to figure out our race relations. And that's that's where we sit. And so, you know, it's I think everything that I turn every moment, every sort of story sort of fits not only in a in a particular way uh, in the, the sort of the narrative, but also in a way that that says something bigger about the country. And I was struck by how often I came across individual stories. There was one more if, if I can go on. And this is uh, maybe somewhat more positive story. Uh, there was a, a young man who is the son of a very wealthy Ohio uh, industrialist. And he had gone off to college and then he was in law school in New York. And he heard about the Rough Riders and he was so, he was an, uh, you know, just an idealist. He really wanted to go fight and save Cuba. That was, and, and, but the war was already starting. He told his dad, hey, I really want to just, I'm going to drop out of law school. I'm going to go join the army. And his dad said, you can't do that. His dad had knew, you know, his dad was alive during the Civil War. And he said, uh, you can't do that. Finally, his father said, okay, finish your exams. So this guy, Theodore Miller, he runs off to war and, uh, well, I'll just give it away. He, uh, he ends up, he ends up getting killed at the battle of San Juan Hill mm. and he left a diary and he kept the diary up to the very last minute. And it's one of the, it is one of the most moving documents I've, I've ever read because on the last minute, the last entry is right before he gets shot. And he says, you know, it's almost like he knew it's going to happen. Cause he said, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I'm now I'm off. And, uh, and you know we'll see what the day brings. It's 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 really something. And how did that survive all this time? Passed, returned to his family, and then they donated, and it was saved. Exactly. So he actually died in a hospital. He was shot. Uh, his spine was severed, but he stayed alive for a little while. And and actually, the most touching thing is a letter that he dictated to his mother mm-hmm. on the hospital bed, saying, "I think I'm getting better." And of course, he didn't. Uh, but he had a best friend uh, in the unit who uh, was there with him, stayed beside him. And when when he died, he his friend uh, collected all of his papers and mailed them back to his family. What made you want to tell their story now? I think, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, America in 1898 is like America in 2019. I, I don't want to draw the parallel too tightly because obviously it's very different. But there's so many things, and the more you dig into it, the more you see the similarities. Um, there's a huge generational change. Uh, there was a dominant Civil War generation that was passing. Uh, McKinley was the last, Civil War gen- the last Civil War president. Roosevelt, who followed him, was the younger generation. And there was a sense that it's a generational change. It's like today, you know, the millennials coming up with new ideas. Uh, technology was changing society rapidly, uh, the, you know, you had telephones coming in, telegraphs, but also cars had been invented. And uh, the Rough Riders, when they got to New York after the war, uh, the people who owned cars wanted to take the Rough Riders out because it was still a cool thing to have a car. Uh, and uh, the economy was booming. Uh, globalization at the time was, you know, you had a period of globalization just like we do today. Immigration was rewriting what the country looked like. You know, you had all these, you know, millions and millions of, in this case, uh, European immigrants pouring into the country, but also challenging what America meant. 
uh, and, and demanding a more diverse, more tolerant view. Um, and so the country was grappling. The political system was falling apart. Uh, the Republicans had been the dominant party. Every president except for a couple had been, uh, you know, since, since the start of the Civil War, had been Republicans. And uh, in the Democrats, we're not like the Democrats today. You know, they were mostly a, a regional Southern party. And, but they were starting to rethink who they were, and they were starting to expand. And the Republican Party was falling apart. It was dividing. You know, Roosevelt ended up running as a third-party candidate in, 2012, in 1912 because he no longer agreed with what the Republican Party stood for. And so you had all these changes going on. And, and, and then in the middle of it comes this decisive event that in some ways pushed the country in certain directions, pulled it away from other directions, gave it some form, also raised new questions. And I, I felt like there is something very familiar about that. Now, in a way, of course, we don't, we don't have a, a decisive event today, but, but you can see how, how a society very much like ours, but 100 years ago, how much even a short war like that could change everything so dramatically, so quickly. What was the most surprising thing you discovered in your research and in telling these men's stories? Well, one of the things was actually not even their story so much as, you know, in a lot of the tellings of the Rough Riders, one of the things that really gets left out is is the Cuban side of the story. Okay. And and I, you know, you hear about the Americans went in, they fought the Spanish, but the war was already going on. The war had started in 1895 as a rebellion, the Cuban rebellion. And one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why the Americans intervened was for humanitarian reasons. Uh, something like 100,000 Cubans had died, Cuban civilians had died in the war uh, in concentration camps. They were, they were called concentrados. Uh, they died of disease. They died of mass executions by Spanish forces. And, and the Americans saw that and thought it was terrible. But the Cubans were, had an army. And, and when the Americans landed, the Cubans, I mean, the Cubans were happy to see the Americans. They wanted the Americans there to fight alongside them. And there was a, a, one of their really fantastic generals met up with the Americans when they got there. And uh, General Calixto Garcia, and he said, we're, we're going to fight together. And the Americans at first said, yes, of course, we're going to fight together. And it ended up not working out that way. The, the Americans more or less pushed the Cubans aside. Uh, but I wanted to tell the Cuban story and get as much personal material as possible. Now, there actually isn't a lot of individual documentation from Cuban soldiers. There's stuff about Garcia but not much else. Uh, but I still wanted to get that angle in because I think it's an important part of this story. It's, it's, it's not just that the Americans were there to fight the Spanish, but that they were there working with and, and oftentimes ignoring the Cubans. And so to me, that, that was the surprising element. It's sort of obvious when you think about it, but it's not something that gets told. And I really wanted to get that part into the story so that, so that people understood the deeper context of what was going on. Well, the reviews are great, and you've got some terrific blurbs for the book. John Meacham, who wrote The Soul of America, historian. Douglas Brinkley, leading historian. Hampton Sides also. So you've got to be pretty excited with the feedback you've received. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the reviews so far, we've got Wall Street Journal and New York Times have, have both reviewed it and positive. So, um, you know, my, my wife and my mom like it. So that's, that's what's important to me. 
Um, but, uh, you know, it's and, and uh, oftentimes, too, for me, writing a book is also an excuse to then talk about what's in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I mean, part of me is always going, oh, I, I, I just want to sell books. I just want to get them. But that's not really what. Look, there no, are you there are better this because you want there to are tell better. Stories. There are much yeah. better ways to make money. And and but but so for me, it's, uh, you know, I love being a writer and I love writing it. And I guess what I'm saying is uh, it would be easy for me to say, OK, I wrote the book. Take it. You read it. You figure it out. I'm not going to say anything else. But it's really fun for me to go out on the road, uh, whether it's in front of audiences or if it's on radio shows and and to talk through what I found. I'm excited about what's in the book. I mean, I'm excited the book is out. But what's in the book, the material really excites me and, and interests me and and I want to talk to people about it, whether or not they ever crack it open themselves. I want them to, I want to, I want to explain to them this this excitement that I've experienced. When you're thinking of, you know, 26th president of the United States, how do you balance not having Teddy Roosevelt take the whole thing over? Because you, as you've said, you've got all these other guys over here who, yeah, we're tennis players. We're going to go be <laughs> rough riders for a while, and then we're going to come back and win two U.S. Opens. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things, and that's always the problem with any book about, any book that touches on Roosevelt is, you know, he is this guy, I'm sure he was like this in person, uh, but certainly as a historic figure, he uh, he just moves into the room and takes everything over. Uh, and as the, as the author, you've got to be, if this is what you want to do, uh, you have to be careful about that. Now, He's great in small doses. Uh, he's very powerful in small doses. So I was able to pick the things about him and the moments that I think he really came through and, and you know, as an important figure in, in that story and, and put him in there, uh, as well as some funny sort of side stories. And, you know, I think he's a colorful character and, and, and worth hearing about, uh, but also not in a way that removed him from... Uh, or removed everybody else and sort of removed him from the story and made it about him. So one of the things is really putting him in the context of all these men. Uh, so showing him interacting with them. Uh, one of the really unfair things, I think, well, he wrote a memoir of the war. And it was, it's actually, it's a pretty good book. Uh, it came out soon after he, because, uh, you know, all he was doing was running for governor of New York and uh, then getting ready to run for vice president. And, you know, he had free time to write an entire book. Uh, but that's who he was. So, uh, so he wrote this book, and um, the joke about it uh, that one of the critics said was, well, he should have called it Alone in Cuba. And the story was, uh, the, the kind of the shtick was, well, it's all about him. It's too much about him. But if you read it, I mean, obviously it's his perspective, and it's going to have his voice in it. But it's, it's, I took a cue from it in the way that he really brought in and showed the importance of all the, you know, well, not every single Rough Rider, but dozens of Rough Riders and dozens of other people, you know, do- other regiments, other leaders. And he gives them a lot of credit. And he doesn't make it all about him or even about his regiment. And so he paints, I think, a very uh, compelling picture of this entire army, this entire force. And so, so I took a cue from that. And some of my earliest research was to go through his memoirs and his writing and see, well, who are the people that he talked about? Who are the people that he found interesting? And then can I find stuff about them and use that as a segue to fill out this bigger picture? So it's not just about Roosevelt, uh, but it's about these people around him. It sounds as if you had a lot of fun putting this puzzle together. It was, it was so much fun. And one of the most fun parts was 
you know, as I was writing the book, I I'd kind of put this off to the end. Uh, but as I was writing the book, I went down to Cuba and I went to Santiago, which is, you know, it's on the far east, southeast side of this way far away from Havana. And uh, I wanted to see where the battles were. And I wanted to get a sense of as much as I could, what was it like? Now, obviously, um, in some ways, I could never experience that. I had a car. They had feet, a few horses. Uh, they were there in the middle of the summer. I was there in March. So I just, there was no way I was going to go there in uh, that late in the year. It, uh, it gets hot. But uh, I wanted to see the battlefields mm -hmm. and I wanted to get a sense. Also, even though this isn't in the book, it's not about the present. I wanted to get a sense of what all of this meant to Cuba, at least to Santiago today. And I was, I was struck by a few things. First of all, that, uh, you know, fortunately, for, I don't want to say fortunately, but, you know, for my purposes, uh, it was uh, it was fortunate, I guess, to see that that the, there hadn't been much development. Uh, you know, this is this is Cuba under Castro or the regime. And uh, so the battlefield, uh, this battle of San Juan Hill, the battlefield is still pretty you know, there's a road that goes through it, and but it's not uh, the city kind of stops before you get to it, and and that's yeah, it's a, the city's bigger than it was 130 years ago, but it's not that much bigger, and and then the the landing sites, uh, the first landing site I couldn't go to uh, because it's now a military R and R facility for soldiers, and uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I I drove up to it because I thought, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, let me just see, and you know, I pull up and. And uh, there's a it was, a, it was a Saturday morning, and there was a guard there, and uh, my you know I sort of explain in my terrible Spanish, you know, I'm I'm an American journalist, I'm I'm here researching the and this guy, you know, I mean he was so nice about it, but he just had this look like, what are you fool? What are you thinking? <laughs> Why? Who you think I'm gonna let an American into a Cuban military facility? Just Some, to look around. Just to look around, really? So I said, yeah, you're right. Okay. So, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? But uh, but there was another beach where they landed, and I went and saw that. Uh, but really just getting to walk around and, and get a sense of what was this battlefield like? What were these battlefields like? And, what was, and, it, and that, more than anything else, really informed the way that I was. I don't think I could have written about the battlefields had I not been able to see what it looked like and walk them and walk them and and get a sense of you know and at the battle of san juan hill um one of the the reasons why roosevelt ended up charging the hill uh was because the men the americans were uh it, it was a very it wasn't roosevelt's fault it was the general's fault uh but they were they really didn't have a plan and they were they were stuck in this riverbank along the the sort of the base of this uh, of the this range of hills it's really kind of the san juan heights it's not just one hill uh and and the spanish were up there they had had weeks to entrench they had better guns they had cannons they had everything barbed wire and the americans were just getting picked off dozens killed every couple of minutes and and you get a sense of what that was like and the desperation that they must have been under and then the decision first by Roosevelt, but also by colonels, leaders of other regiments to say, you know, to charge this hill is suicide, but to stay here is guaranteed death. So we need to, we need to rush these hills and see what happens. And, you know, 
I'd seen that described. Uh, Roosevelt describes it. You can get a pretty good sense in your head of what maybe that was like. But until you stand there and you walk it, and then, and then also when you stand up on the hill and you look down and you think how easy it must have been to sit here and just fire cannons and guns and it's really something. It's really it's really something and and it informed it shaped everything I wrote. Well, the reviews are great. The book is The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and The Dawn of the American Century. The author is New York Times editor Clay Risen. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.